on Kendrick Lamar's Institutionalized, featured on his groundbreaking To Pimp a Butterfly, Lamar laments what money got to do with it when I don't know the full definition of a rap image. I'm trapped inside the ghetto and I ain't proud to admit it. Institutionalized, I keep running back for a visit. No, we're not interviewing KDOT, but we are asking our guest Steve White, former homicide and sex crime senior detective, how much circumstance has to do with the cycle of crime and imprisonment. Also, in relation to his new role at Richmond Football Club, we talk risk management, the psychology of young men, why decriminalisation of drugs is the only choice we have, and why our perception of the police has been heavily impacted of late. But really, it's just another opportunity for a bloody good conversation. This is Generation Balm. to another episode of Generation Balm. Uh, we've got minor time constraints today, but Neil's looking absolutely dashing. Uh, how, how are you on this, this fine evening? I have a tie, black and yellow tie on. I'm very well, thank you. Looks, you look gorgeous, and that's that's the most important very thing. Very rare that I wear a tie. That's okay, it's, uh, it suits you. It definitely does. <laughs> brings out the, uh, the, old man the rosation. <laughs> uh, this, no. is, this is not a very good radio <laughs> commentary. Can't see us, but... Anyway, I mean, we, we're just going to cut right through it. We've got a, a marvellous guest in the, uh, in the studio with us. Uh, it's Steve White, who is the uh, safety and services uh, officer at, at Richmond Football Club, so you two work very closely together. But Steve, how would you uh, describe who you are and, and what you do? Well, firstly, good evening, good afternoon. You do look great, mate, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, my role here is it's one that's evolved over time, but it's based on 25 years of policing. Victoria Police, um, and then uh, as a part-time role for many, many years involved in footy as well. And the two of them sort of grew together as the industry changed and uh, people started to look at risk differently in relation to sport. And so I became involved full-time about uh, four years ago. And, and even in that time, the job's evolved again. So what do I do? Uh, I try to educate our playing group in relation to risk and we try to manage risk to brand, to reputation, to our people, um, and help them understand basically the importance of uh, the brand that we wear and how it impacts on us and the community. So, so in some ways, they, a lot of people call it integrity, and we can we're never quite sure what integrity means. And you know, quite often we talk to Steve about it. And it's more about educating people to know how to be the, the best person they can be is essentially yeah. what his job is. But every now and again, we get involved in that kind of the more harder part of it where someone has done something wrong um, but very important part of a footy club nowadays. Mm. So the umbrella of risk so what, what I suppose well it all falls under that doesn't it um, welfare that sort of thing but yeah. yeah yeah I'm just getting my head around the whole risk thing because it's such you know it's such a, a universal term but within a football club uh, climate, you know, you know why there's risk there because what, what we do our, our cohort uh, somewhere between 18 and 32 years old, <laughs> young men uh, who are at the peak of their powers, if you like, um, and reckon they're, I guess, you know, un- unbreakable, uh, untouchable. Um, and that's what we end if for them to play footy. That's what we want them to be. We want absolute risk takers. We want them to bust their gut every time, believe in themselves, go hard. 
until it gets to five o'clock, and then we want to be goody t-shirts. And that's, you know, in essence, it's probably our job in a way, isn't it, to make sure that we encourage them to be as aggressive as, as they want to be to play the game, um, but then to understand where they fit within it. And, you know, with the stuff with uh, footy clubs now, we're more than, well, no, it's no different than it ever was, but it's just more evident that it's, uh, when you're part of a footy club, you're part of the brand, you've, you, owe a, you seem to owe an enormous amount to all your supporters to behave better and all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of where we come in in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, it is, absolutely. It is. I, one of the alarming stats, even before I started, um, I was talking to a former colleague of mine about the media generally, and he made the comment that there are about 70 reporters in Victoria that report on crime. And we knew most of them. Well, my background was mostly homicide, so we dealt with the media quite a bit. But I was shocked when he told me there was about 170 reporters on the AFL. Uh, and what that told us was that our boys, as young men, were going to go out, as Neil said, and do all the things that young men do, have got a community out there that are, that are making a living out of reporting on what they do and how they behave. And so if you bear that in mind, there's a lot of people out there that are looking for a story, and uh, if you give them one, they get a lot of mileage out of it, and, and it can impact not only on the individual but on the club as well. So that's where it sort of started, was trying to help these young men, as they come into the industry, understand the impact uh, they can have, uh, both good and bad, depending on the way they behave. So, the background of that came from I don't know. I remember like early two thousands. There are a few um, incidents, particularly with the TAC and the amount of attention that was around for you know blokes blowing double the the limit or going forty k's over the over the limit. Is that when when clubs started to Realised that the attention that was placed on these young men was well could be. I think from, from my point of view, no. I think it was when we realised that we've got to help them behave better and not try and cover it all up. And that's when it's become it, it changed its way. We said, well, we're not going to be able to cover any of this stuff up. So we have to. How are we going to deal with it? How do we help them with their behaviour? Rather than because you do you think back to the old, you know, there was all sorts of stuff. You know, even some, you know, sort of inappropriate stuff with women and all that sort of routine where people, you find out later that you know people have been paid off or you know shut up about it and, and I think I think the big change in a lot of ways you probably you'll have a, an opinion on this Steve is that when we accepted that we're not covering it and we have to deal with it we have to own up to it the boys have to own up to it and in the end that's the best way to do it because as soon as you cut well this has happened oh okay rather than someone finds out it happens, it becomes a front page story saying we think this happened. It's sort of, it's almost worse to chase the story than it is to own up to the story. And that that was really encouraging to clubs, I think, because okay, and, and to players to know, well, let's, we'll have to deal with it, we've got to own up to it. So it's a much better way of controlling behaviour rather than trying to be clever bastards and hide it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, the, the issue that the change in um, society that came with social media as much as anything else meant that there were people out there, everybody had a camera and there were people out there that could have their 15 minutes of fame if they got the right photograph, if they were in the right place at the right time and so uh, you know the, the microscope shifted onto people with any level of fame, young footballers included and it became very obvious and this is I guess my policing background that Telling people, for example, not to tell to take drugs. Uh, we know that young people take drugs. We know that we've got um, a, a, a young group of males between 18 and 32 
We know they're right in the hitting zone, they're risk takers. Telling them not to take drugs was no longer good enough. Mm. The message had to be, tell me why you need to. And then I can help you and educate you and understand you better. And by doing that, by educating you and caring about you, I can lower the risk both to you and to us. Because if we figure out why you take them, then perhaps we can figure out why you shouldn't. And, and it's that education piece around that that meant we couldn't cover it up anymore. You, can't, or you shouldn't and couldn't. Yeah, the interesting thing, I don't have any stats, in the, but my gut feel is it would be percentage-wise of that cohort of people, there'd be less who play AFL footy who get involved in social drugs than in the normal community. That would be my guess. It doesn't mean there's none. And there's, there's probably, you know, it's probably a bit more out of control than even I want to admit. Um, but so we've done a pretty good job up to a point, but it still happens, and there's a re- there's a reason for it. Well, why do they do it? And that's that's again, that's part of our job, isn't it? Is to yeah, help absolutely. them with that. Absolutely. I want to get back to well, talking about I suppose drugs and and that sort of thing. But uh, we had a guest on a few weeks ago, Katarina Politi. Uh, incredible, incredibly moving and emotional chat about uh, her son. She lost her son David Kasai to a one punch. Uh, one punch attack. Yep. Um, there's been a lot of talk about terms like toxic masculinity and that sort of thing. Do you buy into the fact that there is a problem with young men and their ability to control themselves uh, in terms of violence and that sort of thing, or is it a a wider issue than that? He's worked in homicide. I reckon. <laughs> I reckon have an opinion on this. <laughs> it's a it's an interesting question. Is there a problem? Yes. Is it better or worse than it used to be? I doubt it. I think it's probably the same as it's always been. I think that um, the male uh, develops a little later with their emotional maturity. Emotional IQ is the term we use these days, isn't it? (laughs) And and men uh, sometimes struggle to express their feelings. We know that. That's pretty basic sort of stuff. Um, Men like to dominate other men. Um, Men like to drink alcohol and and one-up each other. And all of those things, when you put them all in the same place at the same time, particularly if you've got lots of young men, you will get a level of violence. Um, So is there more people dying from it? Uh, Probably not. But should we be able to stop it? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we we adhere to it, Neil and my principle has always been that it's about education and care. If we get the education and care right, then hopefully young men will think about their actions or inactions um, before they act out on the way they feel. And I think we're starting to do that. I think some of the stuff that we I hear certainly um, in the social media circles and in the media generally about violence is really good, um, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, and, and part of that is about what we as the generation that are currently parenting what we're portraying to our young men as to what a man, what it means to be a man. And, and that's the significant part of it here. Um, the most popular young men in Victoria are still probably sports people, big, strong, physical men who conduct themselves in a way that indicates to, to young boys and, and young girls probably that there's a certain way that you need to behave in order to be a good man. And it's shifting that message that I think is the key to shifting violence in society. That, that's my view as a policeman. Because even... I've got this crazy thing. How how people think is extraordinary. Like we, we talk about that. So what we're trying to say is to normal young men, when you're out and about and you get the shits a bit, take a breath, don't do anything stupid. You don't have to whack a bloke. You don't have to do that. That sounds like a really simple message to get across. Yep. 
and we know that you know if he's been taking drugs or drank too much or in a bad mood or whatever, that it's less it's less easy to control that. But then then you hear some of the people in the, out there in the world who are in control of our lives and the way that they behave and what they talk about. And we say, well, we get to a stage now, we're thinking about diversity and looking after people from different races. And so we're thinking about that all the time. And, and even for me, I've had to come a long way in that in my own thinking. But then I see at our parliament, I see that, what's his name? Anning fellow, jump up and yeah, say that, right. you know, that too many Muslims and da 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 da. Yeah. And he's one of his offsiders, the funnel with the bloke with a funny face, <laughs> Cater or whatever his name is, saying Robert. that's the best thing he's ever heard. And I think, what? I'm nearly going to... What fucking hope have we got if these people are promoting that? I mean, all we're trying to say is to kids, you know, be in control of yourself. Don't whack the bloke in there because you might kill him. Well, these blokes are saying, like, is this a rant? Is this too... No, 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 it's good. Am I going too far? No, no, definitely not. Does this relate? I mean, to me, it relates. I'm thinking, God, how can we be that far off? But he's not that far off. He's allowed to say it in our parliament and they're allowed to support it and they're allowed to say it's a great idea. I'm buggered if I can get... I don't get it. I don't get how we can be that far away from like what, what they should be. I mean, I'm not, it's not bleeding heart liberal stuff. It's yeah. uh, That's just not reasonable. Yeah, well, and so it's not reasonable for a kid to whack a bloke. And, but they'll come away and say, I didn't mean to do that. That's just the way it was. So we're trying to convince him to just take a breath and be decent. Whereas we're letting everyone else say... Even, you know, the President of the United States says some stuff. And you go, how the hell can that be? Mm. And again, I'm a bit of a... Trump rander as well, but I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I, I don't, know, I don't know how we solve that with this podcast. <laughs> well, I suppose is that is that a manipulative by the, these men? That surely they know better. Like they know they're manipulating. Well, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm reacting I'm with yeah. hate and that sort of thing. And hate's a strong emotion, isn't it? Yeah, I reckon like yeah. Annie and Cata know. You know, they're fighting for a certain amount of seats. Yeah. So there. the why, why are related so, to this thing is because it really is that it's that instant bit of anger and, and aggression. So you whack someone. And then we're all, and everyone walks away going, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Where these people, like, they seem to be almost sitting up at late at night working out ways to, to do this sort of stuff. Well, do you think that has an influence with, um, you know, a public discourse and, and do you reckon that has an influence on uh, street violence or is that more of a yeah, again, you, just yeah, an we've, ingrained... It's a good, it's a really good question. I think... I think what's he happened is... Man, I think. No, no, I know you're mad. We all do. In my time in policing, so I'm talking about from uh, 1989 to 2014, there were some interesting things happened socially, and one of them was social media. Mm. So it, it just blew up in my time in policing. And one of the things that it took me a while to realise it, and we talked about it a bit towards the end of my career, is that what it's actually done is it's... It's dehumanised the way we re- relate to other humans, generally. And we've gone into a community now where we rarely know the people we live with, as in the people next door, or the people down the street, or the local shop owner. And so what goes with that, and as a policeman what I would say goes with that, is that sensitivity to the well-being of those around us, because we don't know them and so we don't care. Um, and you see it in road rage, road rage incidents where, the, where, where people are treating each other with a total disregard for the other person's welfare. My, my mother, who I quote quite often, would just say it's just bad manners. And, and we would say that that's a bit old-fashioned and yet manners are really significant because they allow us as a community to communicate with each other in a way where there are some boundaries. But there's no boundaries around communication much anymore. One of the things that I deal with quite often 
is the negative feedback young players get through social media. And when you read it in isolation, you realise that it, it is very impersonal and very cutting. And some of these kids take it to heart. And I can understand how they want to withdraw from that society that is commenting on them and not deal with the public. The problem with that, though, is if we all withdraw from society, it's very easy to lash out and punch somebody yeah, yeah. because we don't know them and we don't care about them. Um, and the other thing, and I sound old when I say it, but the other thing that I notice when I turn my television on these days is the level of violence portrayed in what we see as, you know, 7.30 nighttime mainstream media. Uh, it's different and it and it's allows or condones all sorts of behavioural traits that that might be okay for for the common man, but there are parts of our community that are obviously influenced by that, and we see that play out in policing. Um, you certainly, there is a direct correlation between uh, the way people speak to each other in public and the way we allow each other to speak to each other in forms of media like TV and stuff. So I don't know the answer to that, but I certainly think um, that the policemen that I learned from uh, knew everybody in the street, and, and they spent a lot of time making sure they did. Policing in 2018, it's very rare that you'll see a policeman out of the car unless he's stopped to talk to someone specifically about an offence. That um, contact with the community has been lost and there's a desensitisation that comes with that, I think. I saw a couple on bicycles today. Oh, don't you start. He hates the bicycles. (laughs) Very, very distressed about that. But, you you know, even the prevalence of violence towards police is an indication of that desensitisation by the community. People say that it's a lack of respect. Well, yes, it probably is, but it's also uh, a disconnect between the fact that these people in that uniform are actually humans and the reason they're trying to take control is because they don't want you to get out of control. Um, But quite often in the community now, the police are seen as a hurdle to get over rather than a a fence to keep us in. Um, Well, part of that is because that's that's what we get them to do. Half their life is booking someone for doing 50 in a 40 zone, which is a little little bit... It's very... Pertinent. <laughs> it, it may be, yes. But, it, but it's nuts. I mean, who, if you want to run something like a police force, you don't get them to do shit like that. No, you don't. Otherwise, we'll say, oh, all they do is they just sit there and ping you every now and again. And, like, it's not about policing. You, know, you want them to be there to help people when they're in trouble, not do that. That's, and again, maybe I'm arguing out of school, but it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. Like, you don't, you don't look at it and go, yeah, I'm not that keen on what they're doing there. Yeah, but you know some of the stories that we've talked about, real policing, and some of the stories you read, you know, some marvelous stuff that goes on. But that stuff is what—that's the window. The window is we're pinging you for jaywalking or something. Like, I'm like, please, don't be doing that. Yeah, I'd have to say I agree with you with all of that. One of the things I noticed in the latter part of my policing career was the model that I always thought may exist and possibly could could be the best model. I found it, but I found it by accident when I happened to move out into rural areas of Victoria and started dealing with older police members that had been within their own community for some period of time and had that level of connection and that personal knowledge of families and connections within families. And that helped, that that gave the community a a sense of belonging and the policeman a sense of belonging within his community. And I reckon you can tie that back to, um, you know, we're a big city now, five million people, I think, yesterday. It's very difficult to have that face-to-face contact. And so what happens to police, particularly young police, which is the one Neil's talking about, is um, we send them out there to deal with a very narrow section of the community that continually re-offend. And without good education, those young police members think that they're the only people in the community. 
because they're not seeing the other ones. They're not seeing the ones that don't come in contact with police on a regular basis. And so we almost dehumanise our own police force by not allowing them to just go and be part of the community um, rather than just dealing with that thin end of the edge of the wedge. Um, and it, it surfaces in all sorts of ways. We have high rates of um, anxiety and depression in policing, much more than we used to. We have high rates of domestic violence, which is not talked about a lot, but it's there. It's prevalent in, Vic in Victoria Police as in all other police forces as well. And it's because we've stuck these young people into this narrow part of the community and it's almost like yeah, a there's no, there's no good news in the no good news. at any stage. Yeah. No good news. I used to make the joke that police should have to be given the job of telling people they'd won Tats Lotto because at least one day a week you'd go and knock on someone's door for a good reason rather than a bad one. I suppose in terms of that metaphor of the bottled up rage or the bottled up anxiety or that sort of thing, at least that'd be one time a week yeah. where they'd let it off yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. So do you think, uh, we just spoke about um, in another context, but... Is it more dangerous to be a policeman these days in, in Victoria or is it just just changed and evolved? No, I don't think it's more dangerous. I think um, they've changed practice um, and with that practice comes a higher level of safety for the members themselves. And statistically, um, if you look at uh, the rate of um, death and serious injury in Victoria Police, it's dropped considerably in the last 30 years. Um, and that was change of practice. But that change of practice has come at a cost um, in the sense that uh, if your sister or your mother uh, was at home and they were the victim of a domestic violence situation, 10 years ago, the first police on the scene would kick the front door in and deal with the matter post-haste. Right. But in 2018, it's mandated that they've got to wait for another two police to turn up so there are at least four police there before they go and knock on the door. Now, as an example, that makes it safer for the police but it doesn't necessarily serve the community. Mm. And so what's happened is we've probably lowered the rate of physical injury to police because they're not having that one-on-one -on -one contact with the community that perhaps they would have 15 years ago. But the levels of anxiety and depression have gone through the roof because I think young police are standing out the front of these situations feeling like they're supposed to be doing A when they're being told to do B. Mm. And so all we've done is shift the problem um, from one space, which is physical health perhaps, into another, which is mental health. Um, and that's a conversation for another day. But, but I think mental health uh, in Australia generally in young people is, you know, good mental health is something that needs to be talked about and continually talked about because more and more in my time in football, I see more cases of anxiety and depression than I've ever seen before. Uh, and I think that's partly because there's an expectation on young people to be tremendous rather than just okay, you know. Um, is it, I mean, I, I often look at it and I, I try and get my head around it. Um, and it seems as though it's much more prevalent than it ever was. Is that because we recognise it? Whereas once we just said, too bad, so sad, that's your problem. Do you think, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, look, I do. And I think, I think there's an element of that. I think if you tell people it's okay to not be okay, and you keep telling them that, then, then eventually they'll tell you they're not okay, because they're not. So they're telling you the truth. But what we're really talking <clears> about <throat> is resilience. And, and I think that, uh, and I'm going to sound like an old bastard when I say it, but I just think... Uh, life teaches you a level of resilience and, and we've all had our own personal experiences but we've tended to shield our children from that every generation does and so even my own children that are 19 and 15 their levels of resilience are in my opinion poor mm. and it's because probably yeah, they haven't been yeah, exposed made them, uh, exactly yeah, exactly yeah. And so, uh, always, you know... Always pick them up, always drop them off, da, 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 which I Always, guess, yeah. yeah. My son's never ridden his yeah. bike to football training. Or, 
any of those normal things yeah. that we did as kids. He wasn't. He, he was never allowed to play outside. He just didn't. And and so you know we break down those communication skills, but we also break down that that resilience or that independence. In a way, too, I, I get the feeling like, and again, I'm reasonably old now, but like when when kids in my age came out of school, like virtually everyone was relatively guaranteed getting a job doing something. Yeah. And you could afford, either stayed at home for a while, you could afford rent, you could, like, you could stay somewhere, you could work somewhere. It wasn't necessarily the job of your life, but it, you seemed to be able to afford to do that, whereas we've, the community's changed so much now, there's so much contracted work and part-time and da-da-da-da, it seems as though there's not that kind of... And that didn't necessarily make you mentally well, yep. but there wasn't the reason to go, oh, shit, I can't afford to... You know, I can't afford to do anything. I'm going to job. I'll go, what am I going to do? I, I can, would that contribute? Is that making it up? Is that connected to the, you know, your life, the tremendous to okay thing? I think it is, yeah. I think yeah, I, I can ask you too. I can ask you a question, Neil. Your first car, do you remember it? Yeah, it was a Hillman Minx, 1962. <laughs> it wasn't very good. Right. And, <laughs> and what year would that have been that you owned that 69 car? 69 or 70. It was 70, it must have been. So the cars are eight, eight years old? Oh, it was like about 800 years old, I felt, yeah. Uh, and that, for me, is one of those little fine, tangible things that I can see that tells me that it's tougher to be 18 now than it ever was before. So we've got a really young workforce here at the football club, and yet there isn't one kid out there that's driving a car that's older than three years old. Mm. And they've all got the very best phone and the very best clothes, and their social media is constantly being updated. And I just look at that and think to myself, again, that, that it's not okay to drive an old car. Or, or to have a daggy suit or old shoes or that's I'm not criticizing them I'm just saying that that social expectation that's placed on them the bar is higher than it's ever been before and it makes it difficult to just you know yeah, maybe that's go out there it, yeah. and get it no kid wants to say he works at Coles at 19 years yeah. of age because it's not cool you know I want to be the general manager by the time I'm 25 because otherwise I can't write about it on social media and that's not a criticism of the kid it's just where we're at socially it's just where we're at and and I think it's harder. I look at my son now and I think life's harder for him than it was for me. And I think my dad says the same thing. He thinks that life at my age, when he was my age was far easier than it is now. So somehow we've got it wrong, haven't we? And I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. I, I suspect though that um, like most modern things in my lifetime, hopefully, social media will actually become nerdy. It'll be something people don't do, but it's just going to take a while. Do you know what I mean? I, I, most things, as you get older, you see them come around. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the generation that's my, currently my son's age kind of see it for what it is. So he's 15. They see it for what it is. I, I, and I'm, I hate using my kids as an example, but several years ago, my son, as kids do, taught me a great lesson. We were playing junior footy. I was coaching, and he was playing on a girl. And she beat him for the ball a couple of times. She's a great player. And... Um, I made a comment to him after the game about getting beaten by a girl and he just looked at me and said, don't be sexist. He was 12. So that tells me that, that it will evolve away. We, I think we'll move away from social media and the pressures. I think our kids are getting really well educated around that stuff. Um, certainly my son at 15 has a great understanding of um, the responsibility he has to the community and violence and all that sort of stuff. So it is shifting. What do you think? Because I, th- I felt like there was... Maybe I wasn't as, um, you know, I was in it, but it feels like it's coming back the other way with connection as well, as you spoke about yeah, before, like genuine connection rather than being disconnected and being connected with however many. So disconnected in person, 
well now it feels like because of the resilience talk about resilience talk about good mental health it's sort of come back that way where we actually gen, you know genuine meaningful connection is well back in vogue i suppose well, in a funny way, in the, in the the footy bubble, that's what everyone's talking about. Because yeah. this footy club, we're very proud of what they've done. But it was it was around that connection with each other, and were, and everyone's going, shit, you've got to be, you've got to love your footy, you've got to enjoy it, you got, and that, and that's yeah. only a, a microcosm of it. But but we've no doubt that that's that makes a huge difference. It, it makes it, it makes it easier for people to perform, whether you're in a footy team or whether you're in the community or whether you work at a company. It's a it's it's actually quite interesting. It'd be interesting to see how far it goes. Yeah. But having I, said that, we've seen so many examples of it in smaller examples of it in the past that would would just sort of happen, and then later they're now becoming oh shit, well, they did it too. Whereas I, I think it's probably something that might grow. In a lot of ways, I listen to you two talk about the football club, and it's like the prototype for a young man. You know, that environment is what a young man wants to be in because you know it's a lot different when you're out there and. Uh, wherever you're located and all that, you don't have that support base. And I think that I'm sure you know yeah, this. Yeah, I think there's I think a lot, a lot of, of, lot of young men yeah. and a lot of young women yeah. without that support base. It's really affecting them and their ability to, I suppose, thrive. Um, and I mean, that comes back to I suppose trauma and poverty as well and that sort of thing. But yeah, look, this in my policing life, I think I've, uh, I did a lot of lecturing towards the end of my time, and one of the stats I used to like to roll out was. I worked out on average I'd probably made 1,500 arrests in my policing career. And of that 1,500, there's only two people that I ever came across that I genuinely was sitting in the room with and felt that they were um, really bad, really dangerous and really bad. Most people I, I dealt with um, I could uh, relate to in some way or another. Mm. Uh, and there were common themes involved. People doing, um, so to use the term, good people doing bad things. Um, bad people are pretty rare. You know, and uh, usually the reason why people end up in horrible situations is because they've made a series of decisions or, or they've uh, had some, some pretty shit luck, to be honest, mm. and ended up in a really tough place and haven't had the support that you spoke about to deal with it. Um, the, the great part about being involved in this footy club for me personally is it's very um, therapeutic to be able to bring society down to such a small group of people that you can mm. focus on on all of the things that, that Neil just talked about. And you can actually develop some young men that you know are gonna go on from here and do good things. The one thing I have noticed uh, in this group in the last couple of years, which is, gives me great um, insight into how we develop as people, is they're very tactile as men. They're very happy to touch each other. There's no issue there. Yeah. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. You know, they do, mm. it, they do it with real genuine care. And the other strange one is manners. What's come with that care is a real desire to speak to each other in a in a in a pleasing social way, and so out of out of developing this tiny little society that we have that, that actually plays pretty good footy, has come some some habits that grow out of that that probably show us that you know we can get it right. But how do we spread that message yeah. beyond these walls, and how do we get enough um, resources into the community to help the people that genuinely need it? Because the guys that get here are really high achievers. You can't get in here unless you're not. But you'd probably argue that people need it the most are less likely to get it. So how, what the, the the question we'll never answer is how do we get it out there? Mm. Footy clubs have a lot of influence, but I don't think we have that much. Yeah, but even yeah. like, but even you know, we love the involvement in our junior footy clubs, and that and that's kind of 
I mean, I see that in like in the QB as your club, and they, they are not dissimilar to Richmond Footy Club in the way that people treat each other and the way you treat each other. And that's that's and you would be the same in a lot of the junior clubs. Absolutely, yeah. So that's I guess that's the um, the model that we're sort of promoting. And it's not how good you are; it's how much you take advantage of the opportunity and how how much part of the team you are. I guess isn't it? Because we've always believed that play. Boys and girls, play sport, got to be good for you. You learn, you learn a lot of good things. You learn the right habits, treat people well, etc., etc. Which is sort of, you know, relatively meaningless whether you win, lose, or draw. But it's doing it that's the important thing. It's similar though. You see a lot of football clubs, and you see how quickly things can go sour with the culture there, which I don't know if it mirrors, um, you know, parts of society. But you look at some football clubs, and all of a sudden. You know, you work really hard to make a good culture, but the opposite way can happen. A few like, bad eggs or, you know, like a drug culture yeah. comes in and all of a sudden you're back to square one. So it's yeah. full credit here because it does take a lot and, you know, you do need good people within. Oh, but that quite but, often happens, in, particularly in junior footy clubs, is the, the two or three people with the influence get puffed mm. out and they've been doing it yeah. for fun and all of a sudden they leave. It's very hard to replace that, that kind of people, yeah. isn't it? I think I think cultures too are a bit a little bit like reputation, aren't they? They take a long time to build, and they're very easy to, and very quick to dispel. Um, and I think we're both sensitive to that here. When we talk about bringing people into the club, we're more sensitive now. And we're not responsible for it totally, but you're very aware of the people you bring in because that life experience tells you that any one of them can tip the balance the wrong way, and all of a sudden, it, that that hard work dissipates very quickly. And again, that we're in this tiny little micro community where you have so much control over who's here, and it's hard. So how do you do that out in the broader community? And that, that's a question that, it, um, from a policing perspective, is really hard to manage. Policing still in 2018 is very proactive. Mm. Um, sorry, very reactive. It's not very proactive. And proactive is where we need to be. But we still haven't got past the hump. We're still just re reacting to what's going on rather than actually teaching young people today about how we want them to behave in 10 years' time. The thing over the years, over the centuries, has always been the prison system. You could put someone in prison. Now, I look at it and I go, you would be getting there, you've got no hope. What hope have you no. got of coming out? Everyone knows you've been in there. They don't want to know about you. You've either, the only hope you've got is coming back and rejoining the crooks that you were with. When, I mean, I, I've never been involved in it, fortunately, but it just looks like that's the way it is. Is there a... Is there a better way? Can we ever have a prison system that actually helps people when they come out? It's a, oh geez, you've got some yeah, good questions yeah. today. I, I, look, I, it's probably a subject for another day, but you know my background. I managed, um, and I can, we can talk about it now because I'm not in the police force, so I managed very high-risk child sex offenders in the community for quite a while. Uh, and they're people that have come back into the community after offending and they've done a period of incarceration. And we're talking about people with a particularly displeasurable um, um, mindset in that they've offended against children. And the one thing I learned in that process is that if we if we isolate those people socially, if we put them in, in a box and put them to one side and, and segregate them from the community because we're scared of them, then the likelihood of them reoffending is through the roof. The one thing we did learn was that if you actually give them a reason to behave well and you value them, they're less likely to reoffend. Now that's really challenging, particularly around that particular type of offending. But if it applies there, it applies everywhere. And I, th and I think you're right that to a certain extent, the reason people continue to commit crime is because they have no reason not to. 
And so somehow socially, we've got to give them a reason not to, and it can't be a deterrent. It's actually got to be a carrot or a stick. You've actually got to say to them that you can have this life, but you need to do the right thing. And prison doesn't accommodate that. The problem with prison has always been that it's full of other people just like them, and sometimes worse. And so um, I know my personal experience and with then, some... then there's the other people in prison. That's exactly right. <laughs> but my personal experience with young men that have been incarcerated is that they've come out much worse and much more dangerous than, than before they went in. Yeah. So Yeah, that's my point. Yeah, it, it is not the answer. But, but um, what is? That, that's a good question. I'd be a terrible judge. I'd be saying, I'm not sending you in because I know I'm no help helping you. <laughs> that's yeah. the problem, wasn't it? Is part of the problem is like a bit of a, almost a bloodlust. You know, in the media, they they talk about someone. You know, they just people who are reading that paper. A lot of them would want jail time. They want retribution for a crime. Do you think that adds to the whole, you know, lock uh, lock them up and toss away the key sort of mentality in the community? I think it does. But I think the other issue is, can you think of a politician that would get re-elected that <laughs> said we should let people out? Yeah. But, that, but that's the other issue. Well, like when you look at it personally, if, if someone, particularly in a sex offender, think, did something to one of my children, I, I want him to die. Mm. Yep. But, but I know that ultimately, no, I probably don't. But like, and my first reaction will be, that is, whatever happens to him, is, him or her is not good enough. So you can, you can see how it's a genuine problem to solve. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. There's an extraordinary... Not my problem, I don't have to solve it. There's an extraordinary statistic around those, and, and uh, child sex offenders are predominantly male, and there's an extraordinary statistic around that that I think uh, causes us all to take a breath, and that is that we know from the studies that have been done that not every victim of sexual assault as a child goes on to be an offender, but nearly every offender was a victim. Yeah, that's and so there's a cyclic nature to that offending mm-hmm. that... That means that, and I've seen it myself, that if you see a child that's neglected and abused, that child is more likely to go on to commit crime. And so, again, we're talking about breaking a cycle way back early, early days. Yeah. It's very hard to break the cycle when that male's in his 20s or 30s. But when that boy is in his, his early teens, if there's intervention and it's the right type of intervention, then you can change lives. And that brings me back to why I've always been involved in footy, because footy always gave me that opportunity to impact on, on people's lives in a more positive way sometimes than policing. And here is, we think, is almost the perfect model of that right now in 2018. The challenge now is how long we can hang on to that, because you know, it's ever-evolving. And um, the, the nature of the industry is that at the end of the year, Neil's going to be part of making some decisions that some people don't get to stay in this community and new people get to come in. So it's interesting and it's challenging and I've, sometimes I think if I work it out here I might be able to take it out to the broader community but I might run out of time, to be honest. So. Okay, you Well, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> apparently not. Yeah, I suppose um, when you look at it, there are a lot of intelligent people in the police um, so and the government. Yep. Yeah, on average, if they're you know like in terms of can you point them out to me? <laughs> but you, you know no, what I mean, like boys. maybe not emotionally, maybe, maybe not emotionally intelligent. But uh, how come? You know, is it because of a manipulation or something that, or a, something's falling through where we're not educating the public on, um, I suppose, or matters that we've been speaking about, or, or to keep them from that cycle of falling into the cycle of crime and that sort of thing. Or is it just a sort of a, 
look away and that's happening over there. We're going to concentrate on this. And when they fall through, we're going to toss them out. If you sort of know what I mean. I do. I know exactly what you mean. I, what I, I've, I've been thinking about this a bit lately and I think that part of the problem now, and, and you touched on this about politicians earlier on today, Part of the problem now is there are no politicians in Australia that are thinking 10 years ahead mm. because they, uh, they can't plan that far. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about generational change, aren't we? So we would have to change our primary school system in order to impact on our secondary school and so on. But if I'm making those changes now and they're not popular, I'm not going to stay in government. Yeah, yeah. So my thinking is shortened right up to how am I going to get a, a popularity vote in the next six weeks or the next poll? And, and that is not helpful to making social change. That's that's what I think. And no, I think... It's possible, isn't it? It's it is, yeah. Possible. Your comment about, you know, smart politicians, some of the smartest people I've ever met are Victoria Police members. Mm. And and mostly, sadly, they're, they're gone. And the reason that they go is because they thrash themselves against these issues for that long, that it's not good for their health. And so, like me, they get out and do something else. Um, so unless you have that next tier of support, that governmental support and that more long-term thinking, policing will always be reactionary. Um, and so the problem continues to revolve. I suppose speaking about reactionary and um, being proactive, and I know, I'm sure you've got a lot to say about this, but in terms of the war on drugs, um, and it looks like it's a, a losing battle there, yep. but um, there are there is talk about decriminalisation and, and that sort That's of thing. Right. Yeah, and Neil and I have had this conversation before, but you coming from the from the police force and having a uh, an internal look at, at yep. the effects of drugs and alcohol and that sort of thing and addiction on, on crime rates and all that. What do you think about decriminalisation? Is that the answer or is that are we just hoping that would be the answer? It is the answer. Yeah, hundred percent. There are so other you drugs. Knew there's a reason I brought him in. <laughs> <laughs> there are other drugs on the market that are perfectly legal. You can go yeah. and buy a bottle of bourbon for forty bucks and write yourself off. So the, we un, I understand why they won't legalise it. I understand that the cost involved is the concern. Mm. So from a government perspective, once you legalise it, you're probably then liable for all the health conditions that come with that. Okay. But having said that, any policeman who's been around or dealt with these crimes over a period of time will tell you that um, the user is not the problem. The user simply has an addiction, no, no different to most other addictions. What we need to do is concentrate on the supply. So if we regulate the supply, if you have a cocaine addiction and the doctor says you should be taking it while he treats you for it and you go to the chemist and you buy that cocaine and the supply is regulated and it's clean, surely that is a better system than going and buying it off the street where you have no idea where it's come from or the pain it's caused. Well, my argument, that I can understand that my biggest argument is that it, it, the institutionalised crime Yep. Well, we're guaranteeing that these bloody crooks have got a very viable business for the rest of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Because there are going to be people who are taking drugs, no matter what we say. People say, oh, you can't, you can't uh, decriminalise it or legalise it because people will start taking it. No, no more people will take it. Absolutely no chance. Well, yeah. there is half a percent and then they'll drop off. Well, if they all, do, all, I mean, all it's we're doing, right? But all we're doing is, <laughs> is not giving all of these crooks the chance to make millions of dollars and drive their big flash black... Chryslers or whatever they drive, Mercedes yeah. probably now they've moved up there <laughs> because they're making millions. Because they must make millions. Because if the thing costs a dollar to make, but if if it's if it's not within the law, they sell it for ten. 
Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So I, I, don't, I don't get it. I get, unless there are enough people who are making the decisions who perhaps are making a quid out of it, maybe that's why we don't do it. Jeez, we're getting controversial now. We are, aren't we? <laughs> I Look, I, it's Bob Ketter and his mate. Yeah, I, I've always, <laughs> when I say always, for a long time, I've always thought that that was That's the way to go. Um, but it's going to be a brave government that does it, and it's going to be in little dribs and drabs, little pieces over time and very heavily regulated. Um, but the, the example I used to use when I was speaking to young police about it is you might get up tomorrow and read in the newspaper that um, a Saudi pipeline's burst or they've had an argument with the Russians and all of a sudden your petrol's gone up 15 cents a litre. Now, we know that there's enough petrol in the country that that shouldn't impact on the price, but it does. And yet the police tomorrow can go and bust someone with 300 kilos of cocaine and the price doesn't change. So what does that tell us? And it tells us that there is no issue with supply that it is getting in by the truckload. So why don't we just, instead of spending all this money trying to stop it coming in, when clearly it's in, why don't we focus on educating our young people as to the damages it can cause, in the same way that alcohol and gambling causes damage? That would be that money would be better spent that way. Yeah, you're right. Just um, like, yeah. Strangely enough, though, I remember when they legalised brothels in Victoria, and the reason we did it wasn't because we didn't want people to have sex with prostitutes, it's because no one was paying tax. Mm. So now if you own a legal brothel, you're paying tax and the government's getting an earn out of it. So why don't we think about drugs the same way? Let's legalise it, put it through our chemists, have it regulated and, and make some money that we can put back into the community to deal with people that have out-of-control habits. They're no different to somebody that has three bottles of wine a week. Your grandfather would be that pleased to hear this. My father, who's been gone for a fair while, always argued decriminalisation of drugs. And that was way, but that was in the 60s and whatever he was arguing that. Because he could see it. This is ridiculous. Yeah. But it's a bit like the umpires bouncing the ball. <laughs> They're still doing it, but yeah. it's not necessarily a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the arguments that's always been around about uh, legalising drugs is that the people that do it illegally, sell it illegally, will still be in the marketplace. Mm. And I don't agree with that, very simply because if I can go and buy what I need for $15 at the chemist, why the hell would I pay $300 for it on the street corner? Yeah, you won't so the crook's out of business straight away, and that's one of the great reasons for doing it, I think. Because high-level crime, really high-level crime, is driven predominantly by drugs, human trafficking and firearms. Um, and we don't have huge issues with firearms and we don't have huge issues with human trafficking, but we have chronic issues with drugs and it's impacting incredibly on our public health system. So for me, it's a bit of a no-brainer, mate. I so you mentioned the cost it would have. Is, is that what liability for people who've become addicted to drugs previously or, or, the, or the payment through healthcare system? Or how, I, I, just to break that down. Oh, look, I, I think... Um, I think yeah, whoever sells it has got responsibility for the impact on who takes it. Absolutely, yeah, and and I think the the, um, the litig litigious nature of society these days, mm. the government that changes that law will have no doubt be concerned that in ten or fifteen years' time people are going to be smacking on their door saying it's it's your fault my son has a drug addiction, and so how do you manage your way through that? How do you walk through that that because they don't come back and. and um, take whatever family it is to court and say you're the reason my son's got a drug addiction because I don't know no. who they are, do they? No, and, and in all of my time in policing, no one's been charged with bad parenting. They probably should have been a couple <laughs> hundred thousand times, but it hasn't happened. So, yeah, uh, I suppose we've, we've 
unfortunately got to wrap up, Steve. But I just I always end the show with uh, a few. We end the show with a few questions, handpicked by Neil. Um, but yes, it's a pile of weird fishes. So I'll ask you, and you answer whatever way you want to. I'll do my best. <laughs> a few nice fishes yesterday, didn't we? We did both. Yeah. <laughs> nice ad for Rabiras. We had uh, dinner at Rabiras. Again, again we're looking for sponsors. We're looking for sponsors. We got sponsor space. No. Um, what do you fear? Uh, being a poor role model for my kids. What do you hope for? Um, change. Yeah. What makes you happy? My family. And what makes you sad? Um, the breakdown of society, of the connection between people makes me sad. Uh, who do you think is the most uh, positive influencer in the world today? Wow, we... Um, Probably still Barack Obama, I think. Once he motivates himself and realises what he can do, I think he can still do great things. So you are a bleeding heart liberal. <laughs> That's what people will tell us. I, I agree with you. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. okay with the answer as well. But I, I think we've, we've had the same answer for this one for, from everyone who's uh, answered this, but who do you think is the most negative? Oh, the man currently in Barack's chair. <laughs> I, I, I think in, of all the amazing things that have happened in my life, that man getting voted in is one of the great examples of how horribly wrong we've got it. We have. We have. What about that hair? That's good, that hair. <laughs> the, thing is, uh, the thing about him too is that he predicted it. I don't know, you probably know this, but some time ago he actually said, if I run under this banner, I would get in. And he was basically thumbing his nose at American society and saying, this is how stupid people are. I bet you I can. And he did. Indeed, yeah. And it's extraordinary. Yeah. And and in some weird way, I, I, I'm I'm almost in awe of that. That he could call it, do it, and they still fell for it. It's yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. So it's incredible. Um, what album or book would accompany your life story? Tour. Wow. We. Uh, the album would be Bad Out of Hell because it's the first LP I ever owned. <laughs> I still own it. I reckon somewhere upstairs. Twenty eleven, um, not a, not a great performance though. But be no, and and I the, love that album too. Though. It's <laughs> very very good. And the book uh, is just, what's it going to be, boy? What's it going to be? <laughs> He's lost it. <laughs> <laughs> the book is not a book; it's a series of books by Patrick O'Brien, the Master and Commander series. Remember the movie? Yeah, right, yeah. Right, right, right. If you read that series of books in totality, they are one of the great great stories of all time. Fantastic reading. Uh, two more, sorry. The last book, film, or album that kept you, uh, kept you thinking for weeks? Um, the, the, the movie is tough. Um, the book uh, was um, The German Girl, uh, which I just finished recently, which um, I found just horribly sad. Um, and uh, I don't read books generally that make me sad, but that's probably the one. Um, and the film that sticks in my mind is a movie that not many people went and saw probably called The Lady in the Van um, and it was about a homeless lady a true story about a homeless lady that lived in a van in a, in a man's driveway in the UK for about 10 years um, well, if you haven't seen it go and yeah. see it it's, um, it's extraordinary it's about relationships effectively but it's a really great movie so. and the final question a recommendation from your hometown or your home suburb The footy club. Neil's been there. It's, it's like any lo local country footy club. It's just a collection of really good people, you know, all with their own limits and limitations, but all trying to do the impossible, which is what uh, footy clubs are all about. So, yeah, that's where I'd go if I took you home. 
Well, yeah, it's been a marvellous chat today. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thanks, for man. That's great. Um, and uh, I suppose yeah, we'll we'll be chatting to you, uh, chatting to you all soon. And thank you, Neil, as always. Pleasure. Good night.